This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Broadcasting live on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and in the evenings on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk, it is the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Coming up here in a little bit later on, about a half an hour from right now, uh, Aaron Rupar is going to be joining us, Roops with the Scoops. Uh, I have had him on the air for many years back from when he started in the Twin Cities at City Pages and stuff. Aaron Rupar, of course, public notice and one of the most popular political uh, follows on social media. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his heavy lifting he had to do this weekend by watching all the CPAC, which, my God, a sign of the cross for that man. Uh, also coming up here in the 4 o'clock hour, we've got Patrick Cool again from the Minnesota Reformer joining us for his usual weekly visit. Patrick, how are we today? Doing pretty well. I commend Aaron Rupar. He watches this stuff so oh, you don't have to. Him and Cataboo, holy gosh. Those two, they, they mean, you know, we salute your service, please. Uh, I can't. I can't do that. I, I did this thing up on the blog for a few years during Trump's presidency was the, the Trump week for any given week. And I would list all the crazy things that he did. And I started it at the beginning of his administration. And by about, oh, I'm going to guess a year later, it got to be a point where it was a such a consuming amount of stuff that the guy was doing that it was it was taking over my life. I mean, it was to the point where I was missing events for the kids because I was trying to get this thing done. Now, don't get me wrong. I ended up getting a lot of people following the blog because of the, the Trump week. It just got to be a point where, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not about to hire someone. I couldn't really do that. And it just was just too much, but it was just crazy. I used to kind of subject myself to some of the stuff for a little bit of a chuckle, like just how, just how crazy can the stuff get? And then I would kind of think about it. I'm like, millions of people are eating this up, and then I would get angry, and I wouldn't be laughing anymore. Uh, let, let me let, let, let me give you a better example of this. I just deleted um, a, a an app off my phone. It was a gaming app, and it had to do with with poker. And I like poker, and I, I and I occasionally play poker and stuff like that. And but these are these are apps, and their whole goal is clearly to get you to buy more, you know, you know, spend money on the app. And it became a situation where just in the last week, it wasn't fun anymore. Now I don't know about you, but I am the kind of person is if if something's not fun, I'm not putting it into my life. When I did the Trump list, it it got to be a point where it wasn't fun. It wasn't funny. It wasn't a quick little thing. It was this. 
you know, as a full-time job. I mean, it was like 25, 26 hours a week on top of the regular job I was doing. And I was like, okay, I can't do this. And this, this, this app, this poker app, it just it came to a point where it was like, okay, I get you're trying to make money, but if you're making it miserable, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play. And it wasn't just a, oh, it was, you know, the, the, the cards. It clearly was a situation where I was looking at this and the odds of things happening in the way they were, I was just, no. And so it wasn't fun. And the reality is, is I'm not going to do something that's not fun. I, I've got too much, I've got too little valuable time to myself. I'm at that point in my life. I'm 55 years old. I, I realize how many days I have left. And the idea of do, sitting there and doing something that I don't want to do, <laughs> that's not on my agenda. So I, you know, if Rupar goes on out there and he, he, he follows all this stuff and God bless him. You know, absolutely God bless him on that. So 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Uh, for our folks in Illinois, I want to uh, start off with uh, a story down there that this is, yeah, it's, it's getting national attention. I'm, I'm not surprised it, 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 that by this at all. This is to do with a rural judge in Illinois. A veteran Illinois judge has been removed from the bench after an oversight panel ruled that he engaged in misconduct and tried to circumvent the law when he reversed an 18-year-old's rape conviction. The Judicial Inquiry Board filed uh, a three-count amended complaint with the Illinois Courts Commission on January 2023, accusing Adams County Judge Robert Adrian of willful misconduct, conduct that was prejudicial to the administration of the justice, and that brought the uh, that brought the justice office into disrepute, and it absolutely did. If you haven't heard about this case, this is yeah, you're not going to be happy here. After a three day hearing on the complaint in November, the commission concluded on Friday that instead of just a reprimand or censure, the Quincy, Illinois judge's behavior was ample grounds for removal from the bench. Adrian had engaged in multiple instances of misconduct. He abused his position of power to indulge his own sense of justice while circumventing the law. He lied under oath on multiple occasions and has failed to acknowledge his misconduct, the commission ruled. Much more was required of Adrian, the ruling said, based on our findings in this case and the commission precedent, we conclude that only appropriate sanction is to remove the judge from the office of the circuit court judge effective immediately. Uh, Drew Clinton had just turned 18 years old. Drew Clinton had been turned 18 years old when he was charged in June of 2021 with three counts of criminal sexual assault against a 16-year-old girl at a graduation party the previous month. Clinton faced allegations that he knowingly committed sexual acts by threat or by force and that he committed such acts knowing the girl was unable to consent. In October of 2021, a brief trial ended with Adrian finding Clinton guilty on one of the three counts of felony sexual misconduct. The judge revoked Clinton's bond at the time due to the conviction requiring a mandatory minimum four-year prison term. But months later, Adrian reversed the guilty ruling and said he would not impose the mandatory sentence, saying the 148 days Clinton had served in county jail so far was plenty of punishment. And that's a quote. Quote, plenty of punishment for raping somebody. Raping a 16-year-old who couldn't consent to the sexual acts, he basically gave them 148 days. Wow. Not even six months. That's not even five months. It's two days less than five months, for God's sakes. Plenty of punishment. 
This happened when this teenager, because he was and is a teenager. No, he was an adult. He was 18 at the time of the rape, the sexual assault. He was an adult. Isn't it funny when you? it's always someone you want to make excuses for? I mean, I'll, I, I'll tell you the most common way you see it is whenever you see a Republican talking about a crime that involves like a 13-year-old black child, the, the first thing out of their mouth is, they were an adult. They knew what they were doing. Charge him as an adult to a 13-year-old. Meanwhile, when Donald Trump does something, it's like, he's just an innocent guy. You know, you can't hold him. You know, he just, he's just, he's got a childish heart. Come on, man. You can't prosecute him for all these things. See, that's how they do it. This judge basically insisting that a grown adult, an 18-year-old, was just merely a teenager. Ah, As a justification. Wow. Wow. I got to tell you the truth. If I was the father of this 16-year-old, I, the bailiffs would have to stop me from charging the, the judge's stand. I, and I, and I, and I, I, to have someone be found guilty of raping my child and then have that same judge says, yeah, you know, what, you know, lesson learned and, and, and let the rapist go. Oh, I would be livid. By law, the court is supposed to sentence a young man to the Department of Corrections. Um, and Adrian did point out that he said that he, you know, he had no previous record whatsoever. Well, but he did rape someone. The court will not do that. That is not just, he said, there is no way for what happened in this case that this teenager should go to the Department of Corrections. I will, I will not do that. So that he just, once again, he is telling this to the victim. And that is, that is insane. And, and by the way, this goes both ways. In Minnesota right now, in Minneapolis and Hennepin County, we've got uh, Mary Moriarty as the Hennepin County attorney. And she campaigned on the idea of, of needed reform in the, the uh, judicial side of Hennepin County, which was un, undoubtedly needed. I mean, that is not a question. But she has gotten to the point where she has gone so far to the other side that she's she's punishing the victims with these slaps on the wrists of the criminals saying, you know, such things as their brain hasn't formed completely, even though they committed a murder. So henceforth, we're going to sentence them to, you know, home confinement, DoorDash and Netflix. And yeah, that's not a good idea. That's not justice for the dead person. And I'm not saying you, you, you know, hey, you got this thing about brain size, fine. Bring it into sentencing, make it part of it. Maybe not the full time. Maybe instead of, you know, say 12 years, it's down to eight years. Fine. I'm okay with that. But there should be some punishment, shouldn't there? And so in both cases here, coming from both different sides, in this case, he's letting the criminal go because, you know, he's making excuses for him uh, for on a conservative level. On the other side of it, so this, this, out of this desire to have justice in the system letting a criminal go in the other way, you're, one thing is the same. It's you're violating the victims here, and you can't do that. You should not be doing that. Clinton was accused of sexually assaulting Cameron Vaughn, who has since come forward publicly and reached after she reached the age of 18. Vaughn told the Associated Press in November that Adrian's reversal left her completely shocked but determined to remove the judge who, had, she called, had made the comments implying that the nature of the graduation party was why she was assaulted. 
This is what's happened when parents do not exercise their parental responsibilities. When we have people, adults, having parties for teenager, they allowed co-eds and female people to swim in the underwear in their swimming pool, Adrian said, at the sentencing hearing. Basically, he, he, he slut-shamed the victim. Unbelievable. It's just they allow 16-year-olds to bring liquor to a party. They provide liquor to underage people, and you wonder how these things happen. Well, that's how these things happen. The court is totally disgusted with the whole thing. The problem is, is this. We can have a discussion about teen drinking, but your argument is that when someone gets drunk, that they somehow volunteer themselves to be raped. And that's not, the, the, the as a judge, this is the judge saying this, for goodness sakes. Um, the reversal caused massive public outcry with an organization that helps survivors of domestic violence and sexual abuse saying that Adrian's ruling sent a chilling message to other survivors that their behavior would be judged instead of that of the person who harmed them. According to Adams County Court Records, Adrian said he overturned Clinton's conviction because he felt prosecutors did not meet the burden of proof. He's basically trying his best to, to you know bail at this point. Uh, but the commission wrote on Friday the judge reversed his guilty finding based on the reconsideration of the evidence and that his conclusion that the state had failed to prove its case to be subterfuge an attempt to justify the reversal post hoc. After the commission's ruling, Adrian told the Chicago Tribune that removing him from the bench is totally a miscarriage of justice. No, not really. <laughs> no, 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 actually, no, that, that, that doesn't seem like it. Uh, it seems like actually the, the miscarriage of justice is you, sir. Um, I'll tell you what, I got one thought, last thought on this before I get into one other issue with the Massachusetts GOP. I know, that's out of left field. That's coming up before we get to Aaron Rupar at the bottom of the hour. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It's the Matt McNeil Show. On your Tuesday. Good to have you with us today. 952-946-6205. Just one quick little thing I want to mention uh, about that last story. Okay, one of the things I noticed when I lived in smaller towns out of major metro areas is one of the problems that you have is the amount of connection a person like a judge has with the wealthy people of the community and certain people that are influential who basically try to, you know, hey, we're at the country club and, hey, judge, I got to talk to you about something. Do you think it's really fair to ch- – you're ruining that kid's life by throwing him in there. No, he, he ruined his own life by raping a, a girl. But if you get them into a situation where there is communication and there's pressure and there's these things that are out there, I, you know, yeah, that's – that's you, that happens. I, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. Um, not so something so egregious as this story, but you know I've seen it firsthand in in small towns because I've lived in small towns. So nine five two nine four six six two zero five. By the way, Eichmann Breezy. Hi, Eichmann Breezy. How you doing? He's listening in today. Has was a friends out in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. For some reason, we got a ton of people listening to us in Greensboro, North Carolina. I hello Greensboro, North Carolina. Salute. Good to have you out there. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. All right, the Massachusetts GOP. Yeah, this wasn't on my my uh, my uh, dance card today either. But uh, yeah, sometimes uh, weird things do happen. So I saw a story from Raw Story, and I posted it. And here's the story: One of the candidates to represent Boston area district in the Massachusetts Republican Party's state committee is a vowed neo-Nazi who has pledged the mass expulsion of Jews from the United States. 
Don't forget, I'll likely get voted into office on March 5th, said Lori Kaufman, posted on her Twitter account over the weekend. Long-term goals are to ban same-sex marriage. They never should have never been legalized. And trans will be illegal. Yes, illegal. I will also exile all Jews. According to the local Boston outlet, Universal Hub, Kaufman, who is from Dorchester, is running in the first Suffolk County. The RSC divides her love between Kanye West and Hitler. Yes, that Hitler. And blames a COVID-19 shot for giving her stage four brain cancer. She was posted a meme of herself holding a payphone with the words, Hi, Hitler, it's 2024 here and you're requesting your assistance. Wow. Um, per the report, Kaufman had been running as a ticket with state committee men candidate and uh, Cork Park owner Daniel Kelly, but now hates him because he's publicly supported Israel. In the Massachusetts GOP, each RSC district elects one man and one woman to represent the area on the committee. Kaufman is, the only, is not the only candidate for the women's side in the first Suffolk. Also running is Elizabeth Hines Farrick, the assistant director of the State Department of Transportation Assistance. It sounds like one of those weird Massachusetts things. That's what it sounds like. Anywho, yeah, holy crud. Now, we could spend hours talking about the fact that this is an actual Nazi, a Hitler-praising Nazi under the umbrella of the Republican Party. And you, as a Republican, may not like me, but there's one thing you cannot deny, is that 30 years ago, your party was nowhere near the Nazis. And if a Nazi tried to become a Republican, your own party would have said, no, you're out of here. You are not, you are, we have rescinded your, your party affiliation, you are no longer a Republican, that's just that. Today, you guys have Nazis running all over the place. I mean, wasn't there one in Illinois that was running in Chicago, in the Chicago metro areas on a race a few years back? These Nazis keep popping up in your party. And that's a big problem. And I know that the right likes to think that the left has got a whole bunch of bad people in there. But there's no one who's a... who adores Al-Qaeda in the Democratic Party. I know you guys like to say that this person loves them. Of course they do. No, there's no one that supports Al-Qaeda that thinks Al-Qaeda is great, that's calling for uh, 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 bin Laden to to come. It's 2024. We need you. No one is doing that. But they are doing that in the... Republican Party right now with Hitler. This is not a both sides do it. This is you guys have got a problem. And I made the post today. I sort of said just so far that to my knowledge, this person is still a member of the Massachusetts Republican Party. To which I got actually a response from the Massachusetts GOP on this, which I'm kind of Oh, okay, their their tweet went, Ms. Kaufman's hateful rhetoric was addressed via a resolution by the Massachusetts Republican State Committee in December of 2023. Committee member Marty Lamb introduced the resolution and passed unanimously. The mass GOP has no tolerance for discrimination. And I'm going to read to you. They sent me the image of this. 
Resolution 2, Resolution of the Massachusetts Republican Committee Condemning Lori Kaufman's Statements. In the light of the persistent surge of anti-Semitism at home and abroad, the Massachusetts Republican Committee strongly condemns the prejudicial and anti-Semitic statements made by Lori Kaufman, recognizing that such a repugnant views are directly against the values of the Republican Party. The committee takes a decisive stand against hatred and bigotry. Therefore, it be resolved that the Massachusetts Republican Party unequivocally condemns the prejudiced and anti-Semitic statement made by Lori Kaufman, resolved that the Massachusetts Republican Party strongly urges that Kaufman withdraw her candidacy for Republican State Committee. This resolution reflects the party's commitment to maintaining an inclusive political environment and sends a clear message that any form of discrimination has no place in the Massachusetts Republican Party. Fine. Why is she still allowed to be a Republican? I mean, you've condemned her. The very basic. I mean, that's that's a pretty low bar, though. I mean, from what she has said, that's not exactly, you know, slamming it down on on the nuggets here. Uh, you, you basically cleared a very low bar in condemning the pro-Hitler woman. You've urged her to withdraw her nomination. But you are a political party. You could strip her of your party rights and basically say you are not welcome in the Republican Party. That's not what you did. Not by what your statement says, not by what your your argument is. And once again, yeah, I guess you cleared the lowest bar to condemn the Nazi woman. Fine. Uh, you, Why is she even allowed in your party? I mean, she has said some atrocious things. Are, and, and we all know, we, we guys, we all know why you guys don't do it. Because you need the Nazi vote. And that's not just Massachusetts. It's Minnesota. It's Illinois. It's everywhere in the country. The Republicans are so, got such a thin, razor thin clearance to win, they cannot turn away any votes. So they need the Nazi vote. But for the record, I would not be member of a party if it became clear there was a candidate in my party who was a full-blown freaking Nazi, I would not tolerate being part of that party anymore. I would demand that that person be thrown out. And guess what? The Republicans don't seem to be wanting to do that. Aaron Rupar, when we come back, it's the Matt McNeil Show. Broadcasting in the evening on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk and in the afternoon on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Aaron Rupar, uh, Roops with the Scoops, is kind enough to join us. We've been talking to him for years. Of course, Public Notice is his exceptional site uh, that you can find all sorts of great information on uh, that his, he's covering the news that no one else really wants to do it, and he does it so well. Public notice, let's just call it public service, because it is a public service. This man watched CPAC this weekend, and he deserves a, a medal and an award and a parade and a ceremony. Aaron Rupar, kind enough to join us today to talk about that and some other things. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Okay, so you watched CPAC. How many years have you watched the entire CPAC and, and uh, reported on it? You know, I was trying to actually figure this out over the weekend, at least since 2018. Wow. Um, and I think I watched 
17. And at that time, I wasn't quite in the mode of live tweeting and posting videos. But um, I remember writing a couple articles for Think Progress at the time about the 2017 CPAC. But in terms of threads that you can find on Twitter of me posting videos of all the various speeches and whatnot, 2018. From watching it and observing it as you have for so many years, and once again, thank you for your service, sir. The uh, What did you notice? What was different about this year or the last few years? What's changed there at CPAC that you witnessed? Well, the one that stands out for sure, and this isn't uh, new to this year, but it's kind of been a gradual transformation over the years, is how it's really become just a celebration of Trump. And um, there was a little bit like the, the 2021 installment i remember being kind of interesting because that was in around this time you know late february early march so it was shortly after january 6th and i remember that you know there was a little bit of squishiness there were a couple speakers who obliquely said that you had critical things to say about january 6th and and things like that but then trump delivered the keynote and that was actually one of the big milestones in terms of him kind of being rehabbed in the republican party and solidifying uh you know his continued dominance over it and, um, you know, so that was definitely the case this year uh, again. But the one thing that I think was, was a little bit different this year, even compared to last year, years prior, is that there are far fewer uh, members of Congress speaking. Mm-hmm. It really feels like CPAC has become kind of more of a fringe event in that way with a lot of right-wing media people, um, kind of like local politicians. And so it was kind of lacking in star power. Um, you know, you had the big Trump speech at the end, and, you know, you had J.D. Vance, uh, Tommy, tu- Tommy Tuberville spoke. Uh, a few people like that. But, uh, you know, in terms of content for me, it was a lot of speakers that I wasn't familiar with, and that tends to make it a little bit less interesting. And you could see that in the attendance where, uh, especially for the sessions that were pre uh, the Trump speech on the last day, there were a lot of empty seats. Um, it just didn't seem like there was as much buzz this year for whatever reason. Yeah, so that was not just an illusion that, there, that this is, uh, once again, at this core event, which is really appealing to Trump's core base. There were there was an attendance issue this year. Yeah, I mean, you could really notice it in the crowd responses where it just didn't sound like a lot of the speakers were getting very loud responses at all. And then when they would pan to the audience, um, you could see that there are a lot of empty seats and that was not the case for Trump's speech. You know, it seemed like he still packed the room, and it was kind of the normal Trump audience for his CPAC speech. But, you know, I'm not sure if that um, – it's kind of the chicken and egg thing, where I'm not sure if the attendance was down because they had kind of less noteworthy speakers or, you know, if it kind of went the other way, where the fact that it's not drawing like it used to, you know, kind of results in them not being able to get the top uh, conservative people – speaking there, but uh, you could you could very much notice that attendance was down in the in the earlier sessions. Uh, he comes off that South Carolina, of course, as well this weekend. And I wanted to get your thoughts as a person that's been watching this, too. One of the things that I've been kind of raising an eyebrow to me, at least, is this 30 to 40 percent of the Republican Party that definitely does seem to be turned off of Donald Trump. Now, I, that whether or not that translates to November, we should remind everybody that in 2020, Trump got more votes than in 2016. So a lot of people who said, I've had it with Trump and babies in cages still voted for Trump. That being said, this South Carolina run, and once again, in Nikki Haley's home state, 40 percent, that's not that's a pretty big problem. I went back and looked at Carter versus Kennedy in 1980. And for the most part, Carter never had too many. You know, there was a few showings in Massachusetts went Kennedy's way and stuff like that. But it wasn't this bad yet. You know, th- this is kind of the un- the thing that people don't want to talk about. Y- your analysis, as you've looked at this, is this something? Is there just really not anything there, or is this something more that you know really needs to be talked about in a in a, a larger discussion? 
Yeah, I'm with you. And I think that's, you know, a dynamic that a lot of the mainstream media coverage kind of glosses over is the fact that Trump, for all intents and purposes, is an incumbent. Um, you know, I mean, he, if you ask him, he won the 2020 election. And while I don't think a lot of people necessarily believe that, um, you know, he has all the trappings of incumbency where he controls the whole party. You know, Ronald McDaniel steps down as RNC chair, and it seems like he's basically going to pick his daughter-in-law to kind of step in there. You know, so he, he controls the Republican Party, similar to how an incumbent president does. And so when you have 40 percent um, of voters in a place like South Carolina not voting for him, yeah, I mean, I think that does speak to, you know, some uh, discontent with him. You know, on the other side of that, though, I, I really don't know if that's going to translate to November. I mean, we've seen this time and time again now with Trump, where you go back to 2016, uh, you have the Access Hollywood tape in October, you have all these Republicans coming out that month and kind of saying, calling on him in some cases to, to get out of the race and things like that. But when push came to shove, most of them still voted for Trump. So. I don't know if this really, you know, signals any sort of big-time trouble for him in November. I mean, you know, still when you look at credible polling that's coming out on a daily or weekly basis, you know, it's pretty much neck and neck. Some polls have Biden up, some polls have Trump up. But, you know, that's going to be um, our lot this year as a country is that we're going to have to sweat out another very close election that's probably going to come down to two or three states. And so I don't, you know, personally um, have the idea that Trump, you know, only getting 60% in South Carolina uh, is going to signal anything negative for him come November. But I do think it's notable that, you know, for, for a guy who's running basically as an incumbent, 40 percent of Republicans not voting for him, uh, that means something. And I do think that, um, you know, that should be part of the conversation when we talk about results like what just happened in South Carolina. Well, it, 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 is it a case where, I mean, is there a number for you that you say to yourself, OK, fine, if 40 percent, sure, 30 percent of, of that is going to go vote for him. But if it, where's a number for you where you say to yourself, if this amount of Republicans stay home, really did get turned off by January 6th and all these criminal indictments. If this percent stays home, Trump really has no path to victory. Is there a number there that you've seen? They, or you, you, you've kind of formulated? You know, I, I haven't formulated that. And again, I guess just with the, the assumption that I'm working with, which is that most Republicans will ultimately come home and vote for him instead of Joe Biden. Now, um, you know, if there's even 5% um, that, that do, you know, end up deciding that they can't vote for him, that, you know, maybe they voted for him in 2020, but January 6th, was just a bridge too far. I mean, 5% could turn the, you know, 5% of Republicans can turn a very close election into an easy Biden win. So um, that is something that Trump has to sweat this year for sure. But, you know, I think we would see that showing up a little bit more in the polling in a way that we haven't thus far, where it, it seems like Trump is basically polling very close to where he was polling in 2020, you know, heading into that election, which we assumed was going to be a nail biter and was pretty close, even though Biden, you know, in the Electoral College had a pretty large margin. So, um, yeah, in terms of I, I haven't broken down the polling to that level. I mean, I am watching tonight in Michigan on the Democratic side to see, you know, what the, the percentage ends up being for the uncommitted uh, voters who choose not in the Democratic primary to vote for Biden. And, you know, based on what I've seen from some of the previous results in Michigan, it seems like if that number is between like 15 and 20 percent. That's, you know, pretty significant. And um, it depends what Democratic voters you talk to there, whether they're making that vote out of, you know, a way to kind of leverage Biden at this stage and they still have every intention of voting for him in November or if they really are out altogether on him. So, you know, you kind of have interesting, similar dynamics on both sides of this race right now. Um, but, yeah, the, those are both things to look for tonight, although it seems like on the Republican side, uh, Trump, 
by all indications, is going to beat Nikki Haley even by a wider margin in Michigan than he did in, in South Carolina. I, and I think that your point about the, the Democrats and if you you know vote for you know anyone but Biden is is the real reality is it's going to be Trump and Biden. So if you don't vote for Biden, it's it's one it's by proxy a vote for Trump. So you got to keep that in mind. I did like that. Nikki Haley though is in a unique position because even though Trump wants to basically you know just trash her. He absolutely has to have the vast majority of Nikki Haley supporters in the fold at the end. So she's going to have some level of power here. Now, I don't think the vice presidency is on the the table there. But do you see Nikki Haley at some capacity, whether it's going back to the U.N. being the secretary of the U.N. or or something of that nature? She has some power to where she can get a position within that Trump administration if she wants it. That's been really fascinating to me because I thought that in the early stages of her campaign, she was really pulling her punches and, you know, seemed to be kind of refusing to criticize Trump. And so in that way, I really thought she was kind of angling either to be on the ticket or for some sort of role in, you know, possible second Trump administration. But it seems like that's really changed over the last month. Um, You know, she basically when it became just her and Trump as the last two standing it seems like she really started sharpening her, her attacks and calling Trump unhinged and highlighting his uh, legal difficulties, highlighting, you know, in her mind, his failure to deal with national debt, um, you know, just kind of the, the laundry list. I mean, there are, you know, and I've detailed this in the newsletter, um, some areas that she doesn't seem to want to stray into in terms of criticizing Trump over January 6th or the election denialism. Um, you know, so there are certain kind of third rails that she doesn't want to touch, but um it seems like at this point uh, the bridge is kind of burned. You know, Trump has kind of unloaded on her, calling her bird brain and using <laughs> birther smears, mocking her birth name. Yep. Um, those kind of crude tactics that we've seen him use, you know, over the years on other Republican challengers. And so I, I just don't get the sense that, you know, the, the Trump's base would have any appetite for her having a significant role. Certainly not on the ticket as VP, but I think that uh, the criticism has gotten to a point where um, I couldn't really see her serving in the administration at all. And so then I guess maybe the play is if she really does think that uh, Trump is going to lose, which she's been very direct in saying that if he's the candidate, he's going to lose Joe Biden, then does that position her possibly as someone who could run in 2028 and kind of take the mantle of post-Trumpism? You know, maybe she's thinking along those lines. But, you know, to get back to your question, I have very much thought, you know, I found it to be interesting that her attacks have very much gotten sharper over the past month or so to a point where I think she's really kind of burned that bridge behind her. Aaron Rupar, kind enough to join us once again. Public notice is the newsletter you need to subscribe to. Let You have a post here about an hour ago. Um, I mean, the, we're heading for a shutdown here because the House Republicans are controlled by the Howler Monkey uh, Caucus over there. You, you put it out here. Why don't you go through what are some of the things the House Republicans are demanding to avoid a shutdown at this point? Yeah, and this was based on reporting from the New York Times, uh, you know, that, that didn't cite specific members, but kind of ticked through some of the demands that members are making of Mike Johnson as they try to, you know, either cobble together some sort of spending deal or, you know, we, we careen towards the shutdown. And one was uh, restricting the distribution of abortion medications. Um, another was no new funding for any sort of food assistance for Kids, families, infants, uh, and then the third, which you probably have in front of you. I don't have, I don't have the list right in front the of you. Fl- the, yeah, the VA one, it, was, it can no longer flag veterans deemed mentally incompetent for gun background checks. So, yeah, you can't, you know, right. heaven forbid you have someone who probably should not have a weapon not getting a weapon. Right. And, and now let me add to that, though, that both uh, Speaker Mike Johnson and uh, Minority Leaders Jeffries and uh, Schumer, you know, Senate Majority Leader, and then McConnell were at 
the White House today meeting with Biden. And coming out of that meeting, there seemed to be, uh, based on statements that each of them made, with the exception of McConnell, uh, made to the press, a lot of optimism that a deal will be reached. And, you know, it does kind of seem like Johnson is ready to just kind of kick the can down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, based on reporting I saw, he told members not to expect any major conservative policy wins in whatever deal they reach together, and he kind of primed them that they might have a couple smaller wins. But, you know, I think some of the things that we just listed, I don't think any of that's going to make it into the spending deal. So I do get the sense as, as of this afternoon that they will figure something out to kind of keep the status quo going. Uh, I believe there's really kind of a, a harder deadline that comes up in April where they have to have more of a yearly spending deal reached by that point or there will be, uh, you know, shutdown then. But my sense is that they're going to kick the can down the road for another six weeks or so. And the one thing that's interesting, we had about a minute here left, but at the same time, that restricting access to abortion medication, the Republicans are desperately trying to turn the overturning of Roe v. Wade into a win. Even Johnson, though, I think has got that's going to be a hard sell for him because he knows that is such an unpopular issue with the general voting public at this point. Yeah, you know, we've seen that with the whole IVF thing in Alabama this week where, um, you know, it's like the dog who caught the car where, uh, you know, they can kind of have whatever uh, restrictions they want to have uh, in these states, but they're so unpopular that they're facing electoral backlash in general elections. And you know, that's been the one consistent theme that we've seen since June of 2022 when the Dobbs decision overturned Roe is that Republicans, you know, in these general election contests, even in red and purple states, are really struggling and abortion is a top issue. And so, you know, that's another thing to keep in mind that will really favor Democrats throughout yeah. this year. Uh, Aaron Rupar, if you're not following him on every social media site, you're just wrong. You also need to be following his exceptional newsletter uh, that is Public Notice. You can go get subscribed. I'm subscribed. You need to be subscribed to that. Aaron, excellent as always. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much on a Tuesday. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Aaron Rupar. And once again, if you get the chance, follow him on the Public Notice newsletter. That is a must, an absolute must every day. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It is the Matt McNeil Show. Good to have you with us once again here on your Tuesday. I earn Rupar. Man, if you're not following him, and like I said, we've had him on the air. I've been on this radio station for 14 years, basically 14 years. I think we've been having him on the air for 12 of those years, back when he started in uh, local media here. And now, what's his, his 900,000 followers on Twitter alone? And yeah, and public notice is fantastic. I want to get back to that one thing we talked about at the end then, that this is apparently, and the New York Times is reporting this, that the um, this is these are the, some of the... The, the threats that the Republicans are putting out there to keep the government from shutting down. Um, House probably loaded up. They're spending bills with hundreds of partisan policy mandates, a vast con, a majority of which had no chance of passing. They include measures to target various pieces of Mr. Biden's agenda, such as the one to restrict access to abortion medication and another to restrict the Department of Veterans Affairs from flagging veterans deemed mentally incompetent in a federal background check needing to buy a gun. With just four days remaining before the funding lapses for roughly a quarter of the government, some of those issues are emerging as major sticking points in negotiations to reach a deal to keep the money from flowing, as well as also they've come on out. Uh, the Republicans are also objecting to a proposed increase in federal programs aimed at providing nutrition assistance for low-income families, as well as for women and for infants. Mind you, I want to remind you, the hypocrisy of the Republicans. They're basically saying you can't have abortions anymore, but... We're not going to help you, and you're sure not going to get any food assistance from the government either. 
So we 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 are so pro life we're going to starve that kid. Yeah, okay, that's that that doesn't seem to make sense. Um do you remember yesterday on the show? I remember yesterday. It was just like uh yesterday. Uh yesterday I was here and I made the point about the difference between what I am standing for, what the left is standing for in this country and what the right is standing for right now, and particularly the MAGA world. Not necessarily all Republicans, but MAGA for sure. And that the one side is, I care about you. I want to help you. I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's about love. It's about, I don't want to see you suffering. I don't want to see you hungry. I don't want to see you, you know, needlessly dying. I don't want that. And that the Republicans have basically become the polar opposite of that. They don't care about you. They don't care they basically just want to wash their hands of you because it's selfishness wrapped in a bit of ignorance. And so that's and that's the fight we have right now. You either are for helping people or you're for hurting people. And I want to run this little three list checklist that Rupar posted here. And let's make sure we go through this. Now, me personally, I don't want to necessarily hurt women's rights to choose their life for themselves. So I, I'm not I'm not going to chain women to beds. I'm not going to basically charge you know a lab tech with murder because a a test tube containing a frozen embryo was accidentally dropped. I'm not going to do that. I, I don't believe in punishing people because I disagree with something that they are doing. Republicans, they're trying to force their will on you. Not because it's better for you, but because they just don't want you thinking for yourself. Restrict the VA from flagging veterans deemed mentally incompetent for gun background checks. I'm a veteran of the U.S. Army. Uh, Yes, that's right. I was at one point your first line of defense. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm a veteran, and I will tell you right now, there are people who are veterans of the military who should not have guns because... They have men, severe mental issues from their time in service. And we have had case after case where we have had mentally compromised veterans get access to a gun and it does not end well. It ends actually quite horribly. And so... I'm of the mindset, I, I appreciate the individual. I want to get them the mental help that they need. I don't think arming them so that they can shoot as many people as possible if they so de- deem is a good idea. Doesn't mean that eventually we can't revisit that issue, but if they're deemed to be mentally you know, incompetent to own a gun, then giving them a gun is a bad idea, and it's only going to hurt the population. And by the way, I'll make sure I mention it as well. Most Republicans are against funding the mental health for the veterans that they need. And then, of course, the so-called Christians of the MAGA movement can't get out of their way fast enough to basically stop food assistance for the poor, the women, and for the infants, which is the absolute and complete opposite that any Christian should be at. And this is the point when the Republican Christian right comes out and said, well, there's a separation between church and state. Oh, it's nice to see. 
the made-up stuff that you attribute to Jesus, oh, that stuff has to stay in there. But the actual things that Jesus told us to do, well, separation of church and state. No, um, you're the people that basically have insisted that there can be no birth control, there can be no family planning. It's basically, you know, heck, we can go with that Illinois judge. Even if you get raped, well, you know, she was kind of asking for it, is the mentality he put forward. Thank God he's off the bench. The reality is you're heartless people that do not care about your fellow man. Because... If you cared about people, if you love people, if you were there in their best interest, you would say to the people that are in every single district in this country, let, let's take care of the hungry and make sure at the very least they've got some food. And here they are, once again, high-fiving because they're pulling formula and food out of babies' mouths. It really is that simple. (laughs) One side of this debate, one side of this debate is trying to help people, is trying to make sure people have a good quality of life, is trying to make sure people get paid well, have health care, have food, don't have to worry about being shot all the time, can make their own medical decisions. The other side says, no, it's our way or the highway. And... You know, there's an old meme that was put out by a Canadian, and I loved it. He says, why does every every election in America seem like this? On one side, it's everybody gets a puppy, and on the other side, it's diarrhea for life. And it's the puppy only leads by 0.2 over the diarrhea for life. That's just the way it is right now. Uh, Chicago, have a good one. We're back on a Wednesday. Minneapolis-St. Paul, Hour 2 up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt and Patrick and Brett's in studio after two weeks of being gone. Hi, Brett. How are you? It's been a while. Yeah, I forgot how to be in this seat here and do my interviews with Patrick Kulik. I think I got back into it, though. All right. We'll get to that here in a second here. Uh, We'll just give an update on the weather because this has been weird. They they said we were going to get two inches of snow. That, or an inch of snow. They said we're going to get an inch of snow. But then through the day-to-day, they basically went from an inch down to a dusting down to nothing. And it's only in the last hour or so they've come back and said, you know, when we thought that that storm was going to break up, it never broke up. And so we actually have snow in the metro right now, not here at the Palatial Broadcasting Complex in Eden Prairie, but basically just north of us up on Minnetonka Plymouth and the north the northwest metro moving across. How much we get, I don't know. They're saying now... An inch is, yeah, I think it's. I think they're saying an inch is most we're going to get. But they're all saying the same thing. As it comes down wet at all, it's going to be really cold behind this, so it could get real slippery out there. So be careful, especially if you're heading. It is caucus night yes. here in Minnesota. You going to go caucus? I think I might have to go to now. Yeah, I've, would- I've got, I've got my, I've got my costume set to go. Oh, it's not Comic Con. It's caucus. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't want to hit just up like Hawkeye. You know, <laughs> here I am, huzzah! Oh, I thought you said cockeye, is in like <laughs> like a knockoff of Hawkeye. And I've seen that movie. Yeah. Uh, I was, it was that was uh, it was interesting. Yeah, Thanos, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that where Thanos held that glove that time. All right, uh, yeah. needless to say, uh, just okay. You can't you can't do okay, that. I guess you I can't, can't put him on the. Don't tea, yeah. do that to me, yeah. man. Don't put that out there in the ball and the tee. Let me swing. Away. 
Uh, caucus night. Now, if people want to know where they need to go caucus at, uh, the Secretary of State's page has that. Now, and you should know, the primaries are the main ones. That's coming up here on Super Tuesday, a week from today, I believe, right? The 5th, right? Yeah, that's right. We have that hybrid system that yeah. we went to a few years ago, correct? So it's caucus night tonight, mm-hmm. primary night in a week. Uh, but go caucus. This is, this is, I think this is how they choose delegates, isn't it? To, you know, you, 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 this is how you do it. You kind of go through this process. Yeah, if you want to attend the national convention, well, you got to make your start tonight pretty much to have any sort of chance. So that's fun to do that, too. I haven't. Uh-huh. I've only gone – what was one level before the state one? I've at least gone that far in terms of uh, advanced. Really? Yeah, so yeah. district. You went to the, district, I think they, yeah. the house district. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in now uh, – I'm in uh, three, so I'm with Dean Phillips. It's going to be interesting to see what that's going to be like. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be attending caucuses tonight. <laughs> I think – well, I'll leave that story for another day. Uh, 952-946-6205. I do want to get into this because this is somewhat breaking news that was earlier today. The owner of a – Burnsville gun store says he's working with the BCA after the firearm recovered from the scene of the shootout that killed the three first responders was traced to his business. Now, it's interesting because after this shooting, there was a lot of discussion about, well, he stole the gun. He bought it out of a a gangbanger's car. And it was there was this quirk. Now, this doesn't apply here. But if he bought the gun prior to August 1st of last year. He technically could legally buy the gun. He just could not own the gun. They closed that loophole last August. So, and but regardless, this purchase actually took place early this year. John McConkey, owner of the Modern Sportsman, uh, in an email to Care Eleven, said the AR-15 lower receiver was purchased from an out-of-state online retailer who shipped it to his shop for transfer to the buyer. McConkie says the person who purchased the weapon passed the background check and took possession of the AR-15 January 15, 2024. A lower receiver is the ATF-regulated portion of the AR-15 that is identified by the serial number and so it can be traced. McConkie says the person who bought the gun and passed the background check is now under investigation for allegedly committing a felony straw purchase as the weapon ended up in the possession of the accused shooter, Shannon Gooden. He was legally prohibited from possessing firearms due to the felony conviction. Uh, the, the, the quote, the modern sportsman had no way of knowing the lower receiver would end up in the convicted felon prohibited person's possession. The, pro, the prohibited person was not there during the transfer process, nor was his name on any enclosed documents. He says he's working with the BCA to determine how the gun ended up in Gooden's possession. Two things I want to point out about this. First of all, apparently it's not a, you do not have to report a stolen gun as stolen in this state. I'm going to presume that that's going to change because my guess is going to be whoever did buy this gun, whether they stole, you know, they, they in, bought it with the intention of selling it to Gooden or if it truly was, it was, hey, it was stolen. I don't know what happened to it. And there really is nothing you can do to hold that person accountable. That's really all that they, they can say. I, I imagine with as upset as everyone is about this, that you're going to, you're about to get your life under a microscope, but technically he could argue this. And I do not believe there is a, there's a law in the state that says you have to report a stolen gun. If I, if that was what I read, my guess is if that's the case, that they are definitively going to have by the end of this session over in St. Paul right now, 
they'll have a law in the books that says you have to report a stolen gun. Yeah, that would seem to defeat the purpose of a lot of gun laws. If you lose your gun and don't have to report it, I mean, that can go anywhere, as the case would happen right here. And these people on the right that keep screaming, these gun kooks, there's plenty of laws in the books. These laws are so willy-nilly, patchwork, loophole-ridden, that you need to have better laws, and this is a prime example of this. And I want to go to my second point. I have called for a 20-year minimum sentence for someone that buys and then sells a gun illegally. Mm-hmm. And if that was in the case, you might have stopped that right here. This That law was in the books. This, this individual might not have given that gun to the shooter. And I think you have to start treating this, – this would take care of all these loopholes, all these hitches that are in the law – this would take care of them immediately if you just had an airtight, you, you sell a gun illegally in the state of Minnesota, you're going to jail. If you had that, guess what? You need to treat it a lot like with alcohol. If you buy something for a minor, you get in a lot of trouble if they cause an accident or do anything like that. We need something similar with guns where if you're going to buy something illegally for someone, you got to be held responsible. Well, I, I'm already anticipating the right-wingers coming on out there and saying something to the effect of, well, Matt, I, I'm not happy about the police officers and the first responder being shot, but, you know, sometimes... You know, you 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 know the, the the path to freedom is sometimes a little messy. I, you can already see them saying that we yeah. shouldn't do this. No, this is clearly the problem. You have a you have gaps within the purchasing process that allows someone to be able to get their hands on this gun. We need to shut that down. And if you shut it down by saying, "Hey, if you want to be a straw man, fine, you're going to jail for 20 years." Guess what? That would dry up the illegal gun sales immediately. I mean, not say it completely. But I guarantee you there'd be a lot less illegal guns on the streets because would you know, like in Chicago, would you have the people from Indiana that buy them there and drive them into the city and sell them there immediately? You would, if that was the case over there, that would that would get rid of a lot of that right there. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, of course, let's let's get into this because this is a nice long conversation you have with Patrick Cooligan. The um, I love sometimes I love a news outlet that gives you a lot of context. This story they have about the failing schools and entire grades failing, if there's anything, I mean, I know people are going to get upset when I say this. Sure, there are a few charter schools out there that do okay, but clearly we've got a huge problem with the charter schools in this state because they're not pulling their weight as far as education. And frankly, there seems to be a lot of them that only exist to seem to try to get taxpayer dollars from the public schools and put it in their own pockets. And frankly, that's how it looks like right now. Absolutely. And if you read that Minnesota reformer story, that's in the first two paragraphs talking about a school that ran into that situation where they were overinflating their enrollment numbers and then running a huge budget deficit and they had to close. And unfortunately, we do see a number of charter schools that really are struggling in the state of Minnesota that have zero students in some other grade class that are proficient in math or reading. Zero. 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 Well, and it's, it, it clearly that's, is the, 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 the teachers and the quality of education system is just not in place for these charter schools. And, you know, it's so, I, I mean, I think we, why are we wasting our taxpayer dollars on these failed systems? And I think that we have to have this discussion now because this is, there are other options on the table. I don't think this is it. And don't get me wrong. There are a handful, a handful, a small amount of charter schools that seem to get it right. But I have a friend that was a teacher, that is a teacher, and he's at a he's at a private school, and he says, yeah, those charter schools try to hire away the private school teachers. They're looking for the best of the best of the teachers. They're not just looking for someone that didn't get the job down at the Arby's to teach kids. And and he says, there's, there's a big difference. You need to have people that are focused on quality education, and that's just not what you're getting at some of these, a lot of these charter schools. 
Yeah, I'd encourage you to check out the article, minnesotareformer.com. Patrick and I only had a chance to even scratch the surface on some of these numbers, but it, it's pretty shocking to look through and, and see how some of our schools are really struggling, charter schools. And yeah. it's not even just urban schools located in the metro area. There's a lot of rural area schools that are also struggling as well right. with some of these same issues. Uh, Brett, here it is. Uh, Patrick Cooligan and Brett talking about various issues from the Minnesota Reformer right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That's Patrick Hooligan, who joins us to talk about some of the stories and columns that they have been working on over the past few days. As today, we are going to be talking about a new Republican candidate in the 2nd Congressional District that looks to be challenging DFLer Angie Craig. Plus, we will be talking about something from Christopher Ingram that he wrote, talking about some of the some score issues with schools in Minnesota and especially with charter schools that are oftentimes struggling when compared to public schools. So we'll be getting into both of those topics for today. As always, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about what's happening over in the 2nd Congressional District because Joe Tirab is going to be running against Angie Craig in the 2nd Congressional District. Tirab is a Republican, and on paper he has a very strong resume. He's a Harvard Law grad, a Marine Corps veteran, and former county and federal prosecutor, as well as being a son of a Sudanese immigrant. But in your column, you make the argument that despite these credentials, he's still pretty much on board with re-electing Donald Trump. And that really became official after his Republican opponent for the nomination, Tyler Rahm, challenged Tirab on his Trump loyalty. And on his website, uh, you also noted this on Tirab's website, he also said, quote, I will always support law enforcement and ensure that criminals are held accountable, unquote, which is uh, pretty rich considering Donald Trump's attacks on the Department of Justice and the FBI. So this guy, Tirab, definitely on board with endorsing Trump, but to me, in essence, this seems like a guy who will be throwing away what seems like a pretty strong resume to, well, bow to Donald Trump again, like so many other Republicans do. And you wonder how successful this could be in a place like CD, too. Yeah, um, I think this if you're a Republican uh, who is interested in, in taking this seat, this is a, a pretty unfortunate development um, because the kind of Republican you need to win there is uh, is probably going to be uh, somebody who, who is more uh bipartisan um there has that disp- uh, disposition and uh is not going to just fall in line um with uh with the party line and especially with with Trump's line uh as you mentioned he has a real strong resume on paper he's been a, a prosecutor uh, including of of the st- the uh, feeding our future cases very high profile cases did some high profile uh, work as a county prosecutor as well, Marine Corps. Um, you mentioned Harvard Law, so he's got this great resume. Um, but then um, the party is so enthralled to Trump that you can't uh, win the endorsement. You can't get the support of the local activists that you need unless you you endorse Trump. So he does so. And and as I tried to point out in the column. Um, you can't be a law and order guy and then also support Donald Trump. Um, Trump's uh, what, what he has said about the Department of Justice and the FBI, I mean, are, are um, totally beyond the pale. And, and especially for a guy who, who he's, he's he's really criticizing, he's attacking uh, Tayrab's uh, colleagues, his former colleagues, uh, the, the FBI agents who who uh, helped 
uh, Tehrab uh, in his his cases. I mean, they they did the uh, the the uh, investigating to to bring those cases, and and you have, and then he's going to endorse a candidate who uh, has talked about defunding the Department of Justice and the FBI uh, in, until they quote come to their senses unquote. Um, he, he also has this. Uh, history of, of lying and dissembling. Um, and, and of course, the events of January 6th were sort of the opposite of the rule of law. And um, and so Tehrab, to me, is um, he's he's really turned his back on uh, his, his former colleagues and uh, not just in the Department of Justice and the FBI, but also the Marine Corps, uh, because the, the documents that Trump stole and uh, was uh, that had had that uh, his uh, his club in in uh, Florida, um, those were about American military uh, capabilities and vulnerabilities, and and the capabilities and vulnerabilities of America's allies and uh, and enemies. Um, and so, uh, you know, military folks, including the former de- de- uh, Secretary of Defense for Trump, has said that this could put American uh, service members at risk. So uh, this is the unfortunate uh, place that we're in. Um, when you have uh, Trump dominating uh, the party uh, still to this day. Well, I like the note you also put in your column, too, where you talked about how when Trump made those comments to House Republicans, basically urging them to defund the Department of Justice and the FBI until they come to their senses, well, when Trump made those comments, Tarab was working for the Department of Justice at that very moment in prosecuting cases. So as you said in your column, essentially that would be saying, well, Terab, you can continue working for the DOJ, but don't do it for any pay because, well, House Republicans need to defund the DOJ and FBI until they come to their senses. So yeah, that's a rather funny aspect as well, because this is a guy who worked for the Department of Justice. And yet here you go, you have a former president saying, let's defund this entire department. Right. I mean, he wanted uh, the, he wanted folks like Joe Terab uh, and his colleagues at the DOJ and the FBI agents who assisted in those investigations to, to work without pay, um, and and unless uh, the the DOJ would drop its prosecution of him, um, and and of course it's now in two separate cases, one taking documents that were not his, they were and they were sensitive documents, and he was uh, keeping them in very unsecure locations. Uh, that were almost certainly um, uh, exposed to foreign intelligence. And then the second case where he refused to leave office despite losing um, and and cooked up that scheme to try to stay in office and refused to do the peaceful transfer of power. Um, And and Joe Tehrab's colleagues, former colleagues of the DOJ, I'm sure have been working, um, you know, 16, 18-hour days uh, to try to uh, ensure the rule of law and the safety of the American public and our democracy, and uh, and so it's, to me, it's it's he he's really it's insulting to his former colleagues that he would turn around and and endorse Trump. 
Again, we're speaking about Joe Tayrob, who is one of the Republican candidates looking to challenge Democrat Angie Craig in the 2nd District. And the reason why we're focusing on him is that, well, the 2nd District, very likely to be Minnesota's most competitive congressional race uh, later this year. So important to talk about the candidates in this race. And, of course, it's not a guarantee that Tayrob will be the Republican nominee, as we did point out earlier. He does have another opponent, Taylor Rahm, that is seeking the Republican nomination. But talking about this race, has Tayrob tried to dis? himself at all from Trump or some of those extremist positions? I know, granted, it's still very early in the campaign, or has he still largely embraced these types of positions? And has Angie Craig appeared concerned at all about the, the campaign for Tarab, or are we still generally pretty early in the cycle for any of those conversations yet? Well, th- that district is always going to be a kind of very swingy district, and, um, and, and Angie Craig uh, I think she knows that, and um, and she's a very shrewd, careful uh, politician, and has played that district very well. If you remember, she lost in 16, she won in 18, uh, she won a close re-election in 20, she did expand her lead a little bit in 22, um, but I think that she's certainly not taking that for granted. Republicans are definitely targeting it. Uh, Tayrab, uh, insofar as there is a Republican establishment, he's kind of lined lined them up, especially uh, he's got uh, folks associated with with uh, the uh, minority House Minority Whip Tom Emmer uh, from our own Sixth District, helping him. Um, so, so definitely, it's a, it's it's an in-play district. I think it's probably going to be the closest race um, in, in Minnesota um, amongst the eight congressional districts. Uh, the the you met you asked about uh, uh, Mr. Tayrab's uh, whether or not he's trying to distance himself from Trump. He was interviewed uh, by Axios, and he kind of refused to say whether or not he would endorse Trump. And um, so that was um, a little odd. And then um, he kind of made this claim uh, that later on at a uh, kind of a uh, campaign event that he he told the, he told the reporter to, quote, unquote, pound sand, um, which was not really accurate not portrayal of the conversation from what I understand. Um, and then once he was challenged by his opponent, uh, Mr. Rahm, the defense attorney, uh, then uh, K-Rab turned around and, and endorsed Trump um, as, as they all do in the end, uh, as Trump himself said, they, they all bend the knee as he once said about, about Tom Emmer. Yeah, absolutely. They always bend the knee, and that uh, appears to be the case with pretty much everyone that's running as a Republican in just about every congressional district around the country. Uh, read more about that column over minnesotareformer.com, again titled, By Endorsing Trump, Joe Tayrob Has Turned His Back on His Former DOG Collet. DOJ colleagues and Marine Corps. Again, find that over at minnesotareformer.com. I want to talk about another story you guys have been working on over there at The Reformer, and this one is from Christopher Ingram, which has to do with the performance of charter schools and public schools in Minnesota. So going to read through some stats briefly. So back in 2023, just last year, obviously, there were 78 public schools in Minnesota where zero students in at least one entire grade level were rated proficient in the Minnesota Comprehensive assessment tests in reading or math. That's according to the Department of Education data that was analyzed by the Minnesota Reformer. So again, there were 78 public schools in Minnesota where zero students at at least one entire grade level were rated proficient. 
Substantively, there is little difference between a school where 0% of 5th graders meet standards and one where 5 to 10% do. That was noted by Christopher. And for comparison, about 50% of all Minnesota public school students rate as proficient at math and reading. And that number has been declining since the onset of the pandemic. And most of the schools with the extremely high failure rates, 59 of those 78 that I was referring to earlier, are public charter schools. So these are some pretty eye-popping numbers. So I'm curious, what kinds of charter schools are these? Because 59 out of 78 of these schools that have students that rated zero had zero students that were proficient in math or reading is eye-popping. So I'm curious, what kinds of schools are these? Because this is these are shocking stats. Yeah, I mean, so we kind of got this this idea to to find schools that where we have zero percent of the kids are proficient, um, and and that we thought that was important uh, reporting to do because uh, well, it's one of the government's primary jobs, especially uh, state and local government, is to to uh, to teach children math and reading to prepare them uh, to be citizens, and um, so we didn't set out. To, to write a charter school story, let me say that. Uh, but then, as we did this reporting, that's that's what we found. We have a, that, as you mentioned, 59 of the 78 schools uh, where we had a a grade level at zero percent proficient uh, were charters, um, and so they include places like Rochester STEM, Skyline Math and Science, Minnesota Excellence and Learning Academy, um, and something that uh, these schools often have in common is that they tend to be highly segregated. Um, so at, at more than half of the charters, uh, fewer than 10% of the students are white, and at more than a quarter, there are no white students at all. Um, and, and so this is, they're also often in, in uh, economically challenged um, zip codes. The reason this matters is because there's a, a debate going on uh, in, in Minnesota about uh, the resegregation of, of our schools. And um, there, there's a, uh, some researchers at the university who think that, that charter schools are at the forefront of, of that school segregation. There's a, uh, there's a lawsuit um, that uh, is seeking to desegregate our schools, at least in the metro. Um, and uh, the, there's three charter schools that have, that have actually uh, joined that um, lawsuit um, on behalf of the, the state, the defendants, um, they, they argue that they're often taking the, the toughest cases and um, and so they shouldn't be judged uh, harshly um, on the basis of the, these proficiency scores. Um, and um, they point to uh, successes in, in certain high quality uh, charter schools. But I think this is Bit of an eye opener. I hope it is for lawmakers about um, the way that we regulate uh, charter schools and um, and as the birthplace of the charter school movement here in Minnesota. Maybe we do need to be paying closer attention, um, especially to these uh, really uh, these these schools that are really struggling to to offer uh, to, uh, to, for their students to get proficiency uh, in these basic skills. No, oh, this is probably a, a larger question than we have time to answer, but what's been happening at these schools where no students are meeting their minimum requirements? Because it seems to be kind of a mixed bag where we have some cases like what's happening with the Dr. Josie R. Johnson Montessori School, which closed because the school was $700,000 in debt and had basically been inflating their enrollment numbers. You have cases like that. But then you have other 
cases where uh, where Christopher had a chance to speak to a number uh, to a couple of executive directors at local charter schools, John Crossan and Darius Hussein, who basically suggested that charter schools do face some systemic issues with their students. So. Uh, as you kind of alluded to as well, sometimes these charter schools do take on students who may have dropped out of other public schools or have a history of truancy or come from very economically challenged areas. While in other cases, we do have charter schools that largely aren't doing their job and uh, have some kind of shady finances going on. So it does kind of complicate the picture, too, as to what's happening with many of these charter schools that are struggling to have any of their students meet those minimum standards. Yeah, Chris talked to... um a gentleman named Tony Simmons. He's the executive director of the, the high school for recording arts in St. Paul. And he said that uh, most of his students uh, have already dropped out of one or more of the tr- more traditional public schools. And I mean, this is a pretty shocking statistic. Anywhere from between 35 and 50 percent of them lack a permanent residence. So I, I think if you're if you're talking about this, uh, such a challenged, marginalized student uh, population, um, I think we can understand that they're not necessarily going to be uh, scoring uh, great numbers on the proficiency tests. Um, on the other hand, he gives the example of, of as you mentioned, the, the legacy of Dr. Josie Johnson Montessori School, where uh, they just had this huge amount of debt um, and, and had been misreporting their enrollment figures um, by a lot. And so the state ended up... Uh, state dollars follow enrollment. So the fact that they had a lower enrollment meant that the state was going to stop paying them for, for students that were not in fact there. And once that happens, um, they, they had to shut down. So, you know, that, that's, that's a situation that where you're dealing with a, uh, looks like financial mismanagement at, at best, malfeasance at worst. Um, and, and so, you know, nobody seemed to be watching closely enough in that situation. Whereas, okay, maybe there's other situations where um, this charter schools are are dealing with a a student population that is extremely challenging, and we might understand that they're not uh, meeting our proficiency benchmarks. Um, But overall, um, I think the state needs to probably pay closer attention. That's that's just my, uh, my two cents here. And final question on this, uh, again, going back to the Cruz-Guzman lawsuit that you were talking about earlier, some of this data does seem to largely support that we've seen in this article that Christopher uh, wrote going through this data of a number of schools that are having zero students that are are reaching those proficiency numbers. It does seem like the data really does support the argument that's being made in the Cruz-Guzman lawsuit that, well, segregation has not been helping Minnesota students. So if the court were to rule in favor of the plaintiffs in this case, would a number of these charter schools be impacted? Would they potentially be impacted if, uh, if the ruling does go in favor of the plaintiffs in that Cruz Guzman case? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think what's more likely is some kind of settlement. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, as far as charter schools being eliminated, I don't, I don't see that happening, especially in the settlement talks, especially when you've got these three charter schools that are um, party to the lawsuit. Now, um, but I, I think that um, the the evidence piling up that r- racial segregation is bad for academic outcomes, I, I think it can only um, give uh, significant leverage to the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. So we'll just have to see how um, the, the settlement talks go. And then, of course, any settlement probably is going to have to be approved by the legislature. Um, but, the, you know, I, I it's, a, it's a good question as to 
are legislators paying enough attention? Because if this does go to trial and there's some kind of a remedy that uh, the court calls for, um, you know, now the legislature is kind of out of their hands. So uh, this is another issue I think they need to be paying attention to. Um, But it is politically dicey, and so I'm not really sure if they are or not. I'll encourage you to go check out Christopher's article over at minnesotareformer.com titled In Dozens of Minnesota Schools, Entire Classes Are Failing to Meet Minimum State Standards. I encourage you to check it out because there's lots there we didn't have time to get to. So if you're interested in what's been happening with education in Minnesota and the charter school movement, which largely did begin in this state, uh, make sure you check that out over at minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, again, at minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota. Minnesota news and politics. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. It's always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Good to be back with you again here on your Tuesday, 952-946-6205. It has been wild watching the weather forecast today because we, and I just want to get into this really quick because you could end up having some slick conditions, especially if you're heading out for the caucus tonight. It was supposed to be an inch, okay? And then it looked like it was going to break apart at some point. Um, and in kind of not really hit the metro area. Now they're saying it is going to hit the metro area and we're going to get an inch or so of snow. Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it depends on if, if this band of snow breaks up like they were anticipating it does. If it doesn't, yeah, we'll probably get an inch. But, and they're saying with it, so the, the cold air coming in behind it, it's going to freeze things. So it could get pretty slippery. So just be careful if you're heading out tonight. Uh, just yeah, keep that in mind. Nine, five, it is winter. As much as it doesn't want to be, it still is winter. We're supposed to have winter conditions. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Reminder: We got. I'm dropping them all. Listener Appreciation Month. That's still going on. As a matter of fact, this hour and the remainder of this hour, I'm going to be giving away a, a book. That's right, Tom Hartman's new book, "The Hidden History of the War on Voting: Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back." A copy of that book is up for grabs a little bit later on this hour. So make sure you listen for your chance to call in. Nine five two nine four six. 6205 is the phone number. Mike Malaska, a lifelong Hibbing resident and iron ore miner for 42 years, called mining the most polluting industry. Malaska is one of several testifiers in support of Senate File 1416, known as the Prove It First bill. It prohibits the state from issuing permits for a copper sulfide mine before receiving independent scientific proof that a copper sulfide mine was operated elsewhere in the United States for at least 10 years and that a mine had been closed for at least 10 years without polluting the surrounding environment. Mining advocates argue the bill would hurt the state's ability to use the mining resources to, to a transition to clean energy, but supporters say the risks of the environment are too great. I want to give this, this is a great idea, because I've always been of the mindset of that you need to put these large international mining conglomerates, which are using these local ma and pa mining companies as a front for Antofagasta or the Canadians or the Chinese or the Swiss. It's It depends on where you're at, but it's these international mining groups. And my mentality has always been, if you passed a law that said that 
the international mining company that basically is the using this local company as a front is on the hook for the entire cleanup if there's an environmental problem. This will solve the mining problem immediately in Minnesota because they don't want to do it. Because the entire point is to pollute. They know they can't do it without polluting the living daylights out of everything. So they find a few stooges that are stupid enough to go along with this entire plan and basically say, they're going to develop a new technology and until that happens, allow them to just mine. And you're like, okay, you do understand that that's your lake. And there have been, and I've done the reading, there have been numerous times where people said, we welcome them in. They said they would do it efficiently. They said they wouldn't do it. And they now it's destroyed the environment. That their lakes they can't they can't swim or eat fish out of the lakes anymore. That because of the damage done by these mines. So no, I I, I love this idea that once again, it prohibits the state from issuing permits for a copper mine before receiving independent scientific proof that a copper sulfide mine has operated elsewhere in the United States for at least 10 years and that a mine has been closed for at least 10 years without polluting the surrounding environment. So basically, it has to be operating for 10 years without polluting or be closed for 10 years without polluting. I think it's, you know, and, no, it's not an or. So both of those things have to exist. You have to prove that for 10 years you can mine without any environmental damage and that for 10 years you after a mine is closed that there has been no environmental damage and until those two things two hurdles are crossed you cannot issue a mine permit for Minnesota fantastic love this idea fantastic great idea uh senator Jen McEwen of Duluth the DFLer she's the co-author of the bill said copper mining nickel mining differs from the iron and taconite mining that's familiar to the iron range this type of mining has never not polluted the waterway surrounding the mine, she said, making the proposed projects near the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness particularly worrisome. And I want to make sure we understand this. There has never been one of these mines done environmentally safe. So what you're saying is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area means less to me. And the tourism that comes in for that than the profit margins for some international mining conglomerate. Think about the stupidity of this argument. Just think about this. You are a person in northern Minnesota that prides yourself on the narrative of, I'm up in the north country here, and I like my fishing and my hunting and all these things. And you're saying to me, and you are dependent on tourism travel, particularly to voyagers in the Boundary Waters Canoe area. You are desperate to keep that tourism dollar coming in to that district because if that dries up, you got nothing. You're in, your entire economy is in shambles if that dries up. So you should be doing everything in your power to making sure the reason why people are coming up there to, for tourism reasons stays clean and, and tidy and stuff like that. And you say to yourself, I'd sacrifice the Boundary Waters Canoe Area and all the tourism dollars to make sure Antofagasta's corporate executive board gets a nice, tidy little profit margin. Think about that. You, If you are too stupid to understand that you would basically wipe out the tourism industry of northern Minnesota 
which you are somewhat dependent on for this, then you probably should shut up and let the adults talk, okay? Because this has never been done environmentally safe. I want to repeat that. It has never been done environmentally safe. So allowing these clowns to go up there and even try it is a huge mistake. And, of course, these same people are like, well, I didn't realize they were going to pollute the boundary waters when I signed off on it because I I just – I, they made big corporate profits. The state needs to come in and clean this up. That's the lake my grandpa and I used to fish in. Now it's dead. Why, why are the Democrats hurting me? Yeah, we can already see it. We can already see it. Uh, to open up these types of these mines in these areas is particularly acutely dangerous, not just to the water and to the and just not just to the environment of the area where the mine would be operating and where the deposits would be processed or stored, but also to all the communities that are around the area who depend every day on the water and health of the environment for our communities and the pride in our way of life who we are, said McEwen. Uh, Julie Lucas, executive director for Mining Minnesota, argued in a statement that the legislation like Prove It First bill will hurt the state's ability to use its resources. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, they're admitting you, we need to be able to pollute their entire. I mean, if, if you're against this bill, what your entire argument is, is that, hey, we're, it, it's just going to happen. And so that's just it. I mean, and we're not even trying to hide it anymore. So uh, apparently, Aaron Murphy saying that it doesn't it, it, it needs work. I, I don't think it does. With all due respect, Senator, I think that that bill needs to be moved to the front of the line. Because once again, what you're not you're not saying you can't mine. You're not saying that you can't mine. What you're saying is you better do it responsibly, or you're not going to get a permit. So the onus is on them. They're the ones who keep screaming about, we'll be environmentally safe this time. Okay, fine, prove it. What what do you mean prove it? Well, you guys say you'll be environmentally safe, so prove that you're going to be environmentally safe. If you pass a bill that says we have to prove we're environmentally safe, you're just hindering mining. So you're not going to do it environmentally safe. Well, I didn't say it that way, but kind of by proxy I did. That's what you're doing. You know, it takes a special kind of stupid. <laughs> you guys have done a really good job up there of bringing tourism back in force up in northern Minnesota. You guys have done a pretty good job. There's a lot of great reasons to go into northern Minnesota. But if we start getting to a point where a third of the Arrowhead region has been poisoned because of one mine and all these people who's hey, when Antofagasta was here and they told us that we were going to do it safe, I trusted them, even though they should have never been trusted. You know, I guess I have that on my face. We need to clean the mess up. You can't do it. It's gone. But I want to make sure you understand something. The desire of these international mining companies to rip apart northern Minnesota for every last ounce of precious metal for their own profit margins is voracious and they will destroy this state with a smile on their face calling us stupid idiots to our face for ever allowing them in here i like the bill nice job McEwen. 
uh, 952-946-6205. Let's give a book away, shall we? Tom Hartman, who is, if you've not heard, is a good guy. He's on this station here from uh, 11 to 2 every day. He's got a brand new book on the hidden history of the war on voting, who stole your vote and how to get it back. We've got a copy of that book right now for caller number 5, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Caller number five, you'll get a copy of Tom Hartman's new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, part of our AM 950 Listener Appreciation Month. Good luck. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Take a break. Come on back. Wrap up the show when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It is the Matt McNeil Show. Patrick, uh, I do believe we do have a winner here. Who do we have? Congratulations, Joan from Minneapolis. You've won a copy of Tom Hartman's new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Congratulations, Joan in Minneapolis. Guess what? I've got another book to give away tomorrow, so make sure you're listening uh, for Listener Appreciation Month right here on AM 950. And reminder, go to AM 950's Facebook page, like that page, like the post on the page, go get the email newsletter at am950radio.com as well. That will get you in for possibly winning as well. Uh, funny story. Uh, you remember how uh, Republicans, uh, they don't they don't like government, big, big government, keep, keep get big government. You shouldn't be taxing us. We shouldn't be getting our money. Funny story. When money is available, boy, would they get in line fast. A proposed a proposal to expand the region that benefits from millions of dollars of taconite production tax payouts has riled Iron Range lawmakers' intent on preserving that money for the communities that generate it. Minnesota State Representative Jason Rarick of Pine City introduced a bill. Pine City, by the way, not exactly mining country. Uh, he introduced a Senate uh, recently that would bring in the cities of Moose Lake, Cromwell, and Rural River into the Taconite Assistance Area, a northeastern Minnesota region defined by school district boundaries that includes Aiken, Cook, Crow Wing, Itasca, Lake, and St. Louis counties. Rarick intends to also add the city of Barnum to the bill. With Talon Metals holding mineral leases uh, in the area, uh, inside the boundaries of those cities, school districts, Rarick said he was approached by school leaders about the inclusion and his planning for future mining. Wait a second. You want taxpayer dollars to go to your school district? You guys got to get in a lane, man. Uh, I thought they were wasting my taxpayer dollars. All right. Oh, uh, he's a born again. Rarick sounds like a born again liberal. Uh, the, the, it basically, you know, and, and to my knowledge, I don't think they're mining in those areas. They just have leases in those areas. I think that this is, this money is meant for areas where they mine the taconite. Representative David Lizgard, uh, DFL from Aurora, linked the bill to a robber baron proposal that he would not support it. The less you have, the more it means to you and the more that you're going to protect it, said Lizgard. Uh, of the Iron Range. The state law requires mining companies in Minnesota to pay production tax instead of property taxes. The tax has been a major source of revenue in the counties, cities, townships, and school districts within the boundaries of the assistance area for more than 80 years. A large portion is shared with the Department of Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation, which distributes its slice into businesses, communities, and school districts via grants and loans. Good idea. The latest total production tax produ- uh, produced a in 2022 or 2023 distribution was more than 110 million, which includes a state contribution. Of that total, 19 million went directly to school districts. What each district receives is based on a formula. In Aiken County, school district was included in the assistance last year as Talon Metals undergoes environmental review for a high-grade nickel mining in nearby Tamarack. 
about good luck with that, by the way. Sorry, you might need a lot of that money for cleanup. About 10% of Talon Minerals package lies in Carleton County, where the proposed districts are located. But Talon isn't exploring that area and isn't part of the environmental review, said Todd Mallon, chief external operator for the company. Rarick said he doesn't intend for the districts to collect unless mining revenue is generated within their boundaries, similar to the Aiken County edition. Senator Grant Hochschild, the feller from Germantown, also represents a large portion of the Arrowhead, said the bill as written would allow those Carleton County school districts to collect mining tax revenue if Talon begins operations in Aiken County. They border its McGregor School District, which is set to benefit from the Talon operations. Moose Lake School Superintendent Billy Joe Steen said many small northeastern Minnesota school districts struggle to gain voter support for operating levies to cover spending in state funding. doesn't. Between the city's large seasonal population and prisons and the other state entities that don't pay property taxes, we just don't have the commercial property tax base that other communities have. She said any operating levy for the district, 600 students would lean too heavily on homeowners. We're not interested in making taking something away from somebody else, Steen said, but if that if that land is mine in Moose Lake, the district wants to benefit. If, if, if. Uh, the commissioner, Ida Rukovina, said in a statement, uh, this is the IRR commissioner, Ida Rukovina, said in the statement that the, the bill was premature. She said she would it would harm her department and the communities the school districts now receive tacking revenue. Senator Rob Farnsworth, Republican from Hibbing, said in a statement that he didn't support the bill, also calling it premature. Because I guarantee you, don't you want to know the truth is my guess is going to be this. If a mine does open there, but I don't think you should hold your breath on a nickel mine, for God's sakes. But if a mine does open up there, fine. I, I don't know if, but I mean, first of all, is it part of this taconite mining? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be in there. It's going to be a different kind of mine. But fine. Okay, I don't have a problem there. But for you to kind of just set this up as a way to not have to figure out a way to fund your schools other ways, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it. Here's a suggestion. Fund the schools in a better way, and then don't just depend on environmental disaster to make the schools happy. All right? Uh, Native Roots Radio, I'm awake. That's up next. Have a good one. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya!